Welcome back along to this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. This episode is going to be a little bit different than what I'm used to. Rather than my normal content, which is geared around academic studies and research in areas of biblical studies, theology, philosophy, and apologetics, I'm going to do something a little bit more personal and pastoral this time around and do some in-house exhortations to my fellow Christians in the podcasting community, whether you're a producer or a consumer. And I hope that this is value to both of you. So uh, no lengthy introductions. Let's just jump right into today's show. Hey team. So I've been watching the slowly evolving train wreck unfold before us that we call discernment ministries. Uh, These programs are basically the self-appointed theological, ethical, moral, political, ecclesiastical, and cultural watchdogs for American broadly evangelical Christianity, I guess. While there are always exceptions to the rule, it seems that discernment ministries have basically become just the Jersey Shore of American evangelicalism, just fighting to defend their egos and to entertain their audiences. Remember, what you win your audience with, you keep them with. And people love the spectacle, and Christians sadly are showing themselves to be no different in that regard. How many are enthralled by watching this ministry ridicule and bicker with that other ministry, and then that ministry comes back with a zinger of a left hook in response, defending what they said, and then the other ministry fires back incendiaries and defends what they said that they had said about that thing that they said on Twitter that one time, or what this other person who they're friends with said on a Facebook post, and down and down the toilet it goes. All the while, the gospel being declared in a spirit of love and Christian unity moves further and further into obscurity and relevancy. Now, I'm not going to name names or call people of specific ministries out or anything like that. That would actually defeat the purpose of this episode. But what I want to do is to encourage and exhort those listening to vote with your ears, so to speak. Tell these people that enough is enough by not rewarding their divisive behavior with your listenership any longer. Unsubscribe and move on. Not only to stop fueling the fire of their egos and rage that they think that they're getting an audience for and their egos getting a pat on the back for a job well done, but also simply for the edification of your own souls. Stop consuming hollow and unhealthy calories and move on to meat that accords with Christian mature ministry, a ministry that the Bible calls a ministry of reconciliation, not of infighting, bickering, chest thumping, and just really insulting each other. So with that, I just wanted to go through a few scriptural uh, passages um, and some of the concepts that we really should use to evaluate what type of content 
we as Christians are willing to tolerate from within our own community. First is a very famous passage. We hear it at most weddings, but sadly, because it's so common, it may also be somewhat left out. And that is the love passage in 1 Corinthians 13. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. Paul here writing to the Corinthians writes, quote, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, if it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, it is not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's Paul's description of what love is. Now that is obviously paradigmatically showed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But when we talk about later in some of these verses, what it means to speak in love or to do all things in love or to love your brother and so on and so forth, this is love. This is what, how the Bible describes and defines what love is. There, nowhere does it say bluntness is being loving. Nowhere do you get the platitudes necessarily about, you know, telling someone uh, the truth in an unadulterated and direct manner is love, for example. It doesn't tell us that being a jerk for Jesus is loving. Now, there is the common example that if you love someone, you will hate the cancer that's ravaging. And, and that's accurate. That's true. But is that really a good analogy for what happens in these discernment ministries? Is that really a good analogy for how we speak and evangelize and exhort and extol and, and even sometimes have to rebuke other people? Is it the same thing when, when we're dealing with those people as hating cancer, for example? Well, I don't think that it is. When, when we look at this passage and we look at the attributes of love and we look at how it tells us that, that uh, we're to act if we are acting loving, it does so that in ways that are not arrogant. It does so in ways that are not unbecoming. That is, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't do it in ways that turn other people off or, um, or it doesn't do it in ways that are uh, basically self-centered or self-seeking. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked to anger. I mean, wow, that, that, that's, a, that's a big one. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account wrongs suffered. That means you love someone even if you feel that they have, they have wronged you some way and that you've suffered at that. You, you forgive all things. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. That, so that, that's, that's the controlling aspect that we're to remember when we go through the, the next passages that we're going to look at. When it talks about love in these contexts, that's what love is. And if you don't have that, if you don't act that way towards other people, 
then it says you're nothing. I mean, it even says that you could have enough faith that you could, you could remove mountains from, from the skyline, but you'd still be nothing. You, you, could, you could have all of the knowledge and all of the mysteries, and you would still be nothing if you didn't have love. What does that tell us about these discernment ministries that are, quote-unquote, discerning the theological and ethical errors of these other people, but just do so in a way that tears them down and insults them and mocks them and ridicules them and harasses them and bullies them and their families, bullies their children, bullies their wives? That's not love. There are passages that tell us what type of speech Christians should have. Colossians 4, 5 through 6 says, Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. I mean, that's an interesting passage. It's, it's telling us how we should act, not, not even just to brothers, but towards outsiders, toward, towards people that are not even part of the community of faith. We should let our speaking always be gracious, always be seasoned with salt, always be, always be loving, always be wise, always be prudent. That's the idea. We should, we should conduct ourselves with wisdom. We shouldn't be intemperate. We shouldn't be adding insult to the gospel by our own behavior. When, when, when you're out there dealing with outsiders, you know, th this, this topic you know, might come up for over and over again. How do we tell the homosexual, homosexual community and the transgender community that they're living in sin but without doing it in a way that's just mean or a way that adds insult to the gospel? The gospel telling them that their lifestyle is a sin is already offense enough. Do we need to go out there and use pejoratives? Do we need to go out there and say things like, uh, God hates fags? What's that going to do? What's that going to do when, when you're talking and you're dealing with that person? Use wisdom when you're dealing with outsiders. You wouldn't use that type of language when you're talking with your spouse. Why would you use it to someone that you were trying to show the sweet savior of the gospel to? Conduct yourselves with wisdom, making the most of every opportunity, and let your speech always be with grace. Colossians 3.7 tells us, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living. Now, I wanted to put this here because sometimes we think of, you know, the Corinthians was the bad church. The Corinthians was the baddie, right? That was, that was the one where you're really dealing with carnal Christians, and, and Paul could come along and say, such were some of you. But if you look at Colossians, he's really saying, such were some of you. This, this otherwise mature church in the, in the book of Colossians that Paul is writing to, he's saying, such were some of you. You also walked in immorality and impurity and passions and evil desires and greed and idolatry. And, and that's why the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. You walked in those ways. Remember what you've been forgiven of and seek to forgive others and offer that forgiveness to others and offer it 
in a way that is wise and gracious. 1 Timothy 4.12 says uh, in, in Paul's exhortation to this you know, young elder Timothy, he says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. There's, there's this idea here that you shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't kind of live into the stereotype of, of impetuous youthfulness, but rather you can live as an example of your speech and your conduct and your love and your faith and your purity. Titus 2, 7 to 8 says, quote, in all things, by the way, not some things, not most things, not just, you know, the in-church things, not just, not just dealing with outsiders, but not in-church things. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us, end quote. Once you once you consider what that actually what that actually says, that's like a that's like a punch to the gut. Sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. How do you share the gospel? How do you share rebuke in a way that's above reproach, so that even your opponent has nothing bad to say about you? If you're out there telling people in the most harsh, cruel, mean, derogatory language about their sin, there's all kinds of bad things they can say about you. You're being a jerk for Jesus. You're being a bigot. Now, if they're simply saying you're being a bigot because they disagree with you, that's one thing. You can't help the content of the gospel that Christ died for sinners and that sin is a real uh, violation or want of conformity to the law of God. Can't help that. But what you can help is if you're presenting that gospel in a way that's mean-spirited, cruel, or adding offense to the gospel such that they can have something bad to say about you, you could have said it in a gentler, kinder, wiser more gracious and gentle, compassionate way than you did. You could have, but you didn't. That's how we have our speech that's above reproach. If we're running around being jerks for Jesus, they're going to have lots of bad things to say about us. And I would say to you, friend, you are living outside of the command of Titus 2, 7 through 8. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 says, quote, And he gave some as apostles, as some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of a stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, 
We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, it's a long passage. You know, I don't need to address every clause going through it, but here where it says, but speaking the truth in love, a lot of times this will come out and they'll say, oh, well, you know, speaking the truth is loving, for example. You know, I, 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 I should be as blunt as I possibly can with these people because it's unloving not to do so. I'm sorry, friend, that is just not what the passage teaches. It, it is, <clears throat> the, the, the Greek of this is that you are truthing lovingly, right? If, if, if being loving just is being truthful, then that would be you are truthing truthfully. Well, that's clearly not what the passage is saying. It is that when you are speaking truth, you are doing it as lovingly as you can. How would you lovingly share this truth with your beloved spouse or your child or your parent? How would you share this in a way where, where you didn't, where, where you actually cared if this person was turned off and turned away? Sometimes when I listen to these discernment ministries, whether they're dealing with outsiders or Christians in the inside, there's almost this tacit idea that they really could care less if the person comes around. It's, it's, it's that they've done their job, they've spoken, they've spoken what they think is the truth, and that, that's it. That's the responsibility. If the other person doesn't come around, well, damn them. Damn them straight to hell. That is a vile attitude to have. It should break our heart that people are dying apart from the knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ. It should break our heart that people who are living in sin, and we can call it sin, are dying apart and going uh, into hell for all of eternity and, and death and condemnation, that people who are made imago Dei, made in the image of God, are being judged and condemned for their sin. We praise God for the graciousness that we are shown. We praise God for the forgiveness that we have in, in the blessed blood of Jesus Christ. But it breaks God's heart, and it should break ours. For every image of God-bearing human that dies the second death. And this, and this, this truthing in love, this speaking the truth in love, if you, if you tie this together in, in, in this passage, the whole point of it in the Christian context is to bring about unity. If you are, if you are truthing in love, the goal is not simply rebuking for rebuking's sake. It's not simply telling someone how awful they are just, just to tell the truth. The goal is reconciliation. The goal is unity. The goal is causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's the purpose. It's unity, not division. We can look at Colossians 3, 12 through 17, where it says, quote, So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, 
Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. I'm going to stop right there. I'll keep reading in a second. But just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Did the Lord forgive you before you asked for it? Didn't the Lord forgive you and come and die and suffer while you were still yet a sinner? That's a radical teaching of Paul. That we are to forgive people as the Lord forgave us while they are still sinners. We forgive them. Sometimes we think, oh, well, you know, I'll forgive them when they ask for it. Now, you, you forgive them because you have been forgiven. Paul keeps writing, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Beyond all these things, beyond kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiving one another, beyond all those things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That's the goal. And he continues, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts. Whatever you do, do in word or deed. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Do these discernment ministries, do they do things all in the perfect bond of unity? Do they do things in love and kindness and compassion and humility and gentleness for the purpose of building up the body into one unity and giving thanks to God the Father together in Jesus Christ? I got to tell you, I don't see that very often. Again, there are always exceptions, but that is just simply, sadly, not the norm. And what about dealing with outsiders? Well, 1 Corinthians 5.12 tells us, quote, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetousness and the swindlers and the idolaters, and for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually... I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Two thoughts on this. First, what is, what is our response to be to the outsider? Are we to judge them? Are we to have nothing to do with them? Are we to shun them? Are we to turn them off with really equally vile language? No. Paul, Paul says, you can't do that. You can't, you can't live outside of the world. I'm not telling you not to, not to associate with all immoral people. You'd have to leave the world if that was the case. Plus, how would you share the gospel with them? But here he's talking about a so-called brother. Now, this is where some of the, the, you know, the discernment ministers are going to come along and say, ha, see, it is our job. It is our job to rebuke and not to associate with these so-called brothers. Well, this is clearly written in the context of within a church. 
So unless you are one of the elders or uh, one of the, the deacons of, of the specific church that that person goes to, I'm not sure this applies to you. But in, in the same regard, the whole idea behind this, if you continue this thought on, not only is this talking about someone who is <clears throat> overtly and unapologetically a public sinner, right? This isn't just talking about um, something, you know, they shared a stage with someone who you think is theologically um, not the best, to say it nicely, right? If you listen to some of these discernment ministries, it's like you should only ever speak at a conference if you've checked every single theological I being dotted and T being crossed of every single person being involved. And if you don't do that, if you share the stage with someone who, who disagrees with, with one of these, dis, you know, disciple or these discernment ministers, then, then you know, you're in, you're in doubt, you're in question too. You might be a false teacher. Here, we're, we're not talking about something as, as uh, up for debate as that. We're talking about people who are publicly covetousness or practice covetousness. They are public idolaters. They are revilers. They are drunkards. They come to church drunk. They're swindlers. They're cheating the brotherhood out of money, so on. It's those that you're to have nothing to do with. You are to, as the exhortation continues, you are to hand them over to the devil. But even then, the purpose of handing them over to the devil, by the way, is not some type of Mormon shunning. It means treat them as an outsider again. Don't treat them as a brother. Don't invite them to your love feasts. Don't let them partake of the Lord's Supper. Fence the table. But how do we treat outsiders? Think about that. 1 Corinthians 14, 23 to 25, quote, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Now, th this comes up a lot when we're talking about the context um, of ministry and church ministry and saying that one of the aspects of our ministry is that we should be sensitive to the fact that there will be unbelievers among us. We should be sensitive to that fact. We should be aware that they are going to be there. In one sense, seeker-sensitive is an apropos statement, title. In another sense, I we should wholeheartedly re reject what the quote-unquote seeker-sensitive movement has entailed, right? I am not saying for a second that we should reconfigure or restructure or reimagine what the purpose and the ministry of the assembly of God's people on Sunday morning to fellowship and be fed by God, by word and sacrament, should be changed or undone or rethought. It's just that while we're doing that, we should be aware that there are seekers there. There may be unbelievers there. And we should be aware that when we are speaking of unbelievers with unbelievers around, for example, that we should go back to speaking with wisdom, and graciousness, charity, having our speech seasoned with salt, 
taking opportunity, taking advantage of every opportunity. First Thessalonians 4, 9 to 12 says, quote, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. Now, this is an interesting little passage. Um, basically, Paul is, is, is affirming the love of the, the Thessalonians toward all of the brethren uh, throughout Macedonia. <clears throat> probably here referring to their financial help um, for those who are hungry and in need. That's, that's probably the immediate context, but there might be further applications of that. But he urges them to excel more and that their ambition should be a quiet life and to attend to their own business. Shouldn't be seeking up drama, sticking their noses in other people's business and other people's lives. And they should work as their hand so that they behave properly towards outsiders and not be in need. First, Thess or First Timothy 3.7 is really elder qualifications. But I never like when people say that these are elder qualifications. These are, these are like the minimum qualifications of elders. Right? This is not some super spiritual list. This is not something that uh, only applies to elders. This really is what the mature Christian should be like. It's just a way of basically saying, look, elders should be mature Christians. First uh, Timothy 3.7 says, quote, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall under reproach and the snare of the devil. That's an interesting qualification. There are other ones in there that you, sh you know, shouldn't be given to drunkenness, for example husband of one wife, raise his family and his children well. But he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. He must deal honorably and respectfully and lovingly with them. He should, he should be respected within uh, his own sphere where, where he speaks and, and lives and works. This goes all the way back to that uh, Colossians 4, 5 through 6, where it says that we should conduct ourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of opportunity, letting our speech be gracious and, gracious and seasoned with salt so that you will know how to respond to each person. An elder is, 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 lives that out, but a mature Christian should live that out. You should have a good reputation among out, those who are outside of the church. If your reputation among those who are outside of the church is that you are, is that you are just mean and hate-filled, and again, not just because they have some prejudice against Christians that just if they hear that you're a Christian, they just automatically think you're a bigot, or, for, for example, but there are lots of people who love Christians, but they will hear certain people from these discernment ministries, and they will just think that person is just hateful. That person is just mean-spirited person's an egotistical bigot he's just insulting with inflammatory rhetoric 
that person is not fit to be an elder. Now, if they're not fit to be an elder, that means they're not acting as a mature, spiritually driven Christian, living by the fruit of the Spirit. So whether they're an elder or not, whether they are an elder who has, has disqualified themselves by their behavior or not, whether or not they are an elder who should really come under the rebuke of their brother elders, or whether they're just a lay Christian who has a popular radio ministry, whatever, whatever it is, if they do not have a good reputation those, for those outside the church, which, by the way, means that they should also have an even better reputation for those inside the church, but that's, uh, you know, talk for a different time. That's a problem. That's a problem. Now, briefly, I want to talk about this concept of false converts and false teachers. This comes up a lot when you're dealing with discernment ministers because they will often uh, accuse people of being false converts or false teachers or they'll anathematize uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ as uh, being unsaved and they won't consider them as brothers and so on and so forth. Now the problem is in the New Testament the primary identification for, for seeing someone as a false teacher a wolf in sheep's clothing, for example, is an ethical category. It's a category that this person is trying to divide and devour the body of Christ. Now, <clears throat> when I say that's not primarily a theological category, that doesn't mean that I don't think that there are doctrinal issues that drive this. But normally in the New Testament, you can tell someone, what, what the scriptures tell us is that you can tell a false teacher by their ethics, by their life, by whether or not they are bringing unity to the body or division to the body. Are they bringing love or are they bringing division and dissent? Are they bringing people to Christ and his body or are they dragging people away from the body? Are they leaving the fellowship or are they leading people away from the fellowship? Are they leading people towards purity and a life of peace and love or are they taking them away from it? John is a really good example through his uh, gospel and through his, uh, primarily the first epistle. I mean, he's called the apostle of love for a reason. But Paul, or, or sorry, John tells us in John 13, 35, quote, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, end quote. Now, contrary to the false teachers, a disciple of Christ will be most readily, identifiably marked by how well they love the brothers and sisters, but, you know, shorthand. The false teachers are, are, are identified by those who uh, devour and destroy and divide. Jesus tells us that we're going to be known as his disciples by how well we love each other. That's interesting. He doesn't say you'll know, you'll know how, uh, they'll know you're my disciples by how well you can accurately defend the hypostatic union. They'll know that you're my disciples by how well you love one another. 1 John 3, 10 to 15 says, quote, 
By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay them? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's a hard statement. If you're out there tearing down your brothers in the faith, if you're out there mocking and ridiculing, if you're out there just seeking to destroy that other person's ministry, if you're out there bullying his wife and his children, you are not loving your brother. If you love your brother, you'd be out there pleading and loving him and being gracious and kind and compassionate and seeking reconciliation and unity and forgiving trespasses and so on and so forth. You'd be living by the fruit of the Spirit. You'd be living by the love of 1 Corinthians 13. But if you're out there just tearing that person down, tearing them apart, mocking, ridiculing, insulting, John tells us you're a murderer. You are like Cain slaughtering your brother. In 1 John 4, 7 through 8, it says, quote, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And he continues in 20 to 21, If someone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. John tells us over and over and over again, and I only just picked out a few examples. I mean, this goes through his entire letter, this theme. He tells us that if you're not loving your brother, you are not loving God. If you say that you love God, but you're out there destroying and slandering and seeking to tear down a fellow Christian, you are a liar. You are a murderer. You are a Cain. And you cannot be actively loving God if you act that way. That should be a wake-up call for all of us who are in this, these podcasting spheres and YouTube and all of these public ministries. So I have some final questions for us. Whether you're a content maker or a content consumer, ask yourself if you're listening to a debate or a dialogue. And here, you know, I'm not talking about heated dialogues between brothers. You know, we can, we, can, we can have heated dialogues where we are passionately disagreeing, uh, you know, about soteriological issues, for example, or the nature of hell, 
or, or, or baptism or any number of things. We can be passionate about it. But we're, we're, we're attempting to defend the truth. We're not trying to insult or mock or tear down each other. And at the end of the day, we can say, you know what? We disagree, but we still love each other and praise God that Christ bought us both with his blood. And you know what? At the end of the day, when we get to heaven, we're both going to realize just how wrong both of us were on what we're saying. Because God babbles to us in baby talk. We see as though through a, a glass darkly. So I'm not talking about those types of disagreements. We, we've all heard these, these, these uh, uh, discernment ministries where they're, where they're out attacking and they're just show after show, response after response, volley after volley, and after a while you just get so lost on what are the, like the topic isn't even there anymore. It's now just defending the person, defending their ego, defending, well, I said this and I said this, and well, I'm, I meant what I meant when I said this one thing about what I said that one time on that one Twitter post Really, is that a gospel issue? Is that an issue uh, uh, that is primarily doctrinal? Is it any of your business, what the person said? That's a good question to ask yourself. Is, Is what they said something that really should be taken up and left to the church and the elders to which that person belongs? And if they don't, if that person doesn't have elders, let's say, let's say they haven't come under that kind of ecclesiastical authority, why are you that authority? You might make comments, but are your comments geared towards reconciliation and forgiveness and love and charity and compassion and unity? Are they said in love in the 1 Corinthians 13 sense, in the Colossians 3 sense? Ask yourself, would this be an issue that's better handled in a private discussion rather than a public one-sided assault? We all know that that text is easily misconstrued. We all know that one-sided dialogues are easily misconstrued. We've all heard things and said, well, if I was there, I would have said this, you know, and they got away with saying this because I wasn't there to defend myself and so on and so forth. Would it be better to just call that person up, have a private conversation, do it in a spirit and love and unity and compassion? Maybe you misunderstood them. And And by going straight to the public, You've now thrown gasoline on a fire that would be almost impossible to put out. Maybe that conversation did start in private, but it couldn't be resolved. What edification and unity is brought about by bringing it to the public? Maybe it was unresolved in private. Does that mean it automatically has to go public? Does that mean you have to post videos showing about how, how, how you know, good of a guy you are, that you, you, know, you waited two months to make this one, fee, this one fact go public? Look how, look how great and gracious you are for waiting for that. Did it have to go public at all? Ask yourself those questions when you're either producing this content or listen to it. Is this content needed for the gospel to go forth? Or is it just someone trying to win or protect their ego or their brand. Some responses, because um, you know, I've had I've had conversations with a couple of ministries that I that I appreciate that have kind of started to go down this route, and I've honestly just unsubscribed lately to a few of them um, because I was uh, quite honestly bothered by the direction that it was going. 
And, and they responded and they said, well, you know, we, we have to respond because if we don't, it'll hurt the reputation of our ministry not to respond. Right? If, they're, if, they're, if they're slandering us, we need to respond to defend our good name. Otherwise, the reputation of the ministry will not be there. I guarantee you, brother, that you will have a much better reputation by not giving in to every single attack on your ego. By, by not every single time something bad happens, some, some objectionable statement is made, jumping down the throats. By living according to 1 Corinthians 13, where it says that it does not take into account wrongs that are suffered, that it bears all things. Really? Your brand is what needs protection? Do you have to respond in a tit-for-tat kind of way? Even if you have to go public, even if you think that, that you think it's so egregious that this person is, is may may really have a, a big enough audience that it, that it might affect your brand, whatever that even means. I mean, I, I'm hard to press to think of an example, but could you simply make a statement of brotherly disagreement and love? Just say, you know what, we we disagree with this person's take on it, but we don't think it's worth it to devolve down this down this trail. We think it was. Not it, it doesn't represent our, our statements or our spirits, and here's the link for people who, who would like to hear what was originally said. In the spirit of unity and love, we give the option to hear both and make up your minds. We love you all, and we pray for each other. Do you have to go down hours and hours and hours cross-attacking and ridiculing? is protecting your own reputation, even if the accusations are, are completely unfounded or completely false, demonstrably false? Is it really worth getting into the battle of egos when really it's the reputation of Christ that's at stake? We've all heard the cliche that wrestling with a pig is never a good idea because you're the only one that gets muddy and the pig really enjoys it. Sometimes people are going to critique your ministry just because they want the drama, just because they want to watch it all burn. Do you really want to waste your time in that, in that mud pit? I would like to encourage each one of us with the same exhortation that Paul did to the Philippians. He writes, finally, brother, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Brothers and sisters, watch what type of content we make. Watch what type of content we consume. If it's not true, if it's not honorable, if it's not right, if it's not pure, if it's not lovely, if it's not of good repute, if it's not in excellence or worthy of praise, don't dwell on it. Don't give your ears to it and don't give them the subscription and the encouragement to keep producing that type of content. Let the Jersey Shore know that there is no room in the stable for ungodly, unbrotherly 
hatred. For Cain's hatred of his brother. There is no room for that in the inn. Think on that, brothers. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Good night, and God bless.